I trust that uh, we're all turned to Isaiah 52, or excuse me, 62. Don't turn to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 62, may the Lord bless the reading of his word. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, for your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as long as man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with you and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. This has been the word of the Lord. Before I uh, read uh, our given text uh, this morning out of Matthew 21, I just want to uh, greet you in the name of the Lord from Santa Clarita and Covenant Baptist Church. It is a pleasure to be here this morning. I had an opportunity to come a little early to the membership class, so I'm well on my way, Pastor Joe. And uh, if any of you missed it, maybe my attendance will count in their place in some Christian way. Um, but it is a joy to be here and have an opportunity uh, to bring God's word, but it is also a terror for me. Uh, as I stand before the living God, before his bride washed in the blood of Christ, and with his word, it is with uh, much uh, terror that I preach the word of God to you, but it is a joy by uh, the spirit of God to do it, and I pray that he will aid me uh, to do it well for you this morning and bless you with it. Uh, again, before we uh, read Matthew 21, uh, as I've been working through it with my congregation, we've had an opportunity to get to Matthew 21. Uh, not so with you guys. Uh, so I want to give you guys just a, a quick uh, tour, and it's going to be real quick, to Matthew 21. And, and just some of the highlights that we need to recognize in the book of Matthew as we see it, or as I understand it, as, as the first gospel uh, written to those early Jewish Christians so that they would be able to establish their faith in Christ, knowing that he had come with anticipation of the Old Testament. 
that as we read throughout Matthew, this was done to fulfill. And over and over again, Matthew reminds us that, that Christ's coming was not without anticipation. It was not without uh, foreshadow. It was not without uh, foretelling in the prophets and certainly all uh, the Old Testament. For Christ even said that if you have read Moses, then you have read of me. And so Matthew opens his gospel and he really sets it out for us that he's going to set his gospel to, to show us that Christ has come, the true son of Abraham and the true son of David. And in those two things, um, we see that Christ has come and presented to us in Matthew as not only the true son of Abraham, but the true Israel. Come to do what Israel of the Old Testament could, could not do. Even from the very beginning of their birth as a nation, they failed the Lord. Even while Moses was on the mount receiving the law from the Lord, they were down below committing idolatry uh, with the aid of Aaron, their high priest. And so he comes as the true Israel, and then in, as the true son of David, he is the true king. And there is a connection there between uh, him being the true king and also uh, the son of man. As we see often in reference in the prophets that this son of man was going to be son of David. And uh, so we take great delight in reading the book of Matthew and studying it as we get to explore with Matthew by the Spirit uh, these great truths unfolding before us and the early life of Christ and his baptism and what that meant. And then as I read in Isaiah 62 that there was going to be a preparing of the way of the Lord, the clearing of the stones, right, as it said in Isaiah 62. And we know that was done by the ministry of John the Baptist where he comes before the Lord preparing the way. And then Christ comes on scene and he begins to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And there was, uh, great, there was some confusion there because there was the anticipation of the arrival of the kingdom of God for uh, those uh, first century Jews was an anticipation of a, uh, a mighty warrior king coming to expel their earthly enemies, namely the Romans, and reestablish an earthly kingdom. And it seems like Christ's ministry, even amongst his disciples, was all about correcting that. That one, their nature of the kingdom was something they needed to understand primarily. And so we have these parables of the kingdom of heaven is like. And he, and he begins to show them that the kingdom of heaven is unlike what they've anticipated because they have overlooked some things in the Old Testament. And so as we get now to the last section, you can break up Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew in many ways, but it seems like the common uh, uh, section that everybody gets to is they get to Matthew 21, and it begins a new section almost in every uh, uh, different breakdown because this is the final arrival of Christ. This is the final week of his, of his life. Uh, many call it the Passion Week. And so here, as we look at Matthew 21, this section is, uh, is presenting to us the final, the beginning of the final conflict between Christ and the Pharisees and Sadducees. And this is going uh, to end, uh, this will end at the end of chapter 23. Where in Matthew twenty two forty six we read that no one was able to answer him, speaking of Christ, a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. 
The, the, the arguing was over. The, the accusations or public accusations were done. The, the Sadducees and the Pharisees um, were no longer going to openly oppose him. Um, but they would secretly uh, conspire or continue their conspiracy against Christ to put him uh, to death, to put him away. And after that, uh, in chapter uh, 23, we read of the seven woes that Christ uh, declares upon the Pharisees and Sadducees. And, and a woe is, is essentially uh, a, a damnation. He's saying, uh, you are uh, condemned Woe to you who are condemned. And he gives seven woes to these Pharisees and Sadducees. And then Christ will teach on the last things. And then a number of parables in, in line of that before he is then given over uh, to the authorities and leaders and put to death. And so we find ourselves at the beginning of that uh, um, part of Christ's ministry and, and life. And so it's an important part because we see Christ kind of change some things up in the way that he travels and how he is received. And then, uh, and then from that, we can see what he is uh, teaching us even now this morning. And uh, by way of title, if I were to title my sermon, uh, I, I would use the last verse in our passage in verse 11, where the question is proposed, who is this? The crowds uh, was asked of the crowds that the, the whole city was stirred saying, who is this? As Christ arrives here is what's commonly known as the triumphal entry. Uh, this is our question this morning that we were going to get to. This is the, the question of, of the age. This is, this is who is this? Who is Christ? And hopefully as we uh, finish this morning, uh, you will have a better understanding who is this Christ, whether he, as your Savior or as the one who uh, stands as judge, and you need to repent and uh, kiss the son, lest he in anger uh, judge you. So take refuge in Christ is our encouragement this morning. So you can follow along as I read for us Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And again, may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounting, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal of a beast of burden. The b disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus the Nazareth, of, from Nazareth of Galilee. Will you pray with me as we ask the Lord's assistance this morning? 
Oh, Father, we pray that your word would be our rule this morning, that your spirit would be our guide and that your glory would be our ultimate end. We ask that you would have mercy on us and teach us your truth. And that you would not only teach us your truth, but that you would grant us to be changed by it. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, if you're keeping notes or if you want to keep track of the progression of this message this morning, uh, as we work through our passage, we're going to work under these headings. uh, The preparation, the interpretation, the exclamation, and the investigation. And these are going to be the headings that are going to allow us to move through our passage so that we not only keep me on track, as there's so many rabbit trails and so many uh, intricacies of it, but also to, to keep you on track and follow along with me. The first thing we come to is that there is a preparatory work that Christ gives his disciples. And so this preparation uh, comes to us by way of understanding some of the geography of that day, that the distance from Jericho to Jerusalem is about 17 miles. And so it opens our passage now. They drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage. And the understanding is they were coming out of Jerusalem in verse 29 of chapter, or Jericho, excuse me, out of verse 29 of chapter 20. And so from Jericho to Jerusalem was 17 miles or 15 miles to Bethany. The difference in elevation is some 3,000 feet. So there's an ascent to Jerusalem. And you are aware of that, uh, that section of the Psalms that is labeled the Songs of Ascent. And they were, they were given to the people of Israel so that they would sing on their way to, their, to Jerusalem. As Jerusalem was coming into view on the horizon, they were given these songs to sing of the glory of God and of His deliverance. And so we, uh, we, we look at that and we see that there's a 3,000 foot, uh, about a 3,000 foot elevation change. Matthew does not mention the arrival at Bethany, but we see Jesus, which John describes as occurring six days before the Passover, probably on Friday afternoon. So the other gospel accounts let us know that he arrives at Bethany first and Bethphage is is mentioned in in relation to that. And so we see that there's this arrival at, at Bethany probably on Friday afternoon. Here Jesus appears to have spent the Sabbath And we may suppose him to have been the guest of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Hearing of his arrival, many Jews came over from Jerusalem to Bethany to see him and also Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so there's this uh, this moment where he pauses and repose and 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 uh, recognizes the Sabbath. And so the timeline is such that Christ's arrival into Jerusalem, what we read of his triumphal entry, his arrival into Jerusalem was probably on the first day of the week, on Sunday. And so we're going we're gonna to see this is in Christ's life. He's arriving on Sunday in triumphal uh, reception. And again, we're, and then eventually in my congregation, we're going to get to his resurrection on Sunday in triumphant fashion also. And so here we see that his arrival is probably on the first day of the week on Sunday and he instructs his disciples to go into Bethphage and get a donkey colt. And uh, he tells them that they are to go in the village in front of you and uh, or go uh, to the village on the other side. Other translations uh, mention that. And so 
Bethphage is, is one of those cities where archaeologically they, they're not really quite sure, but it's in, um, in relation to Bethany, and so they think it's probably across uh, a valley. And so he sends them over there to this, uh, to this community to find this donkey and its colt. And he tells them something specific here in relationship in this preparatory uh, time. He says, tell them the Lord is in need. If anybody asks, you shall say the Lord needs them. Well, this is a, uh, an interesting um, thing that he tells his disciples. He tells them that, that if anybody asks, because the assumption is you're going to go and untie these donkeys that don't belong to you, that don't belong to you disciples, yet tell them the Lord is in need of them. And what we uh, take uh, observation of here is the articular the that the articular Lord was a reference not to an earthly Lord, as if tell them a Lord needs it, or, or tell them your Lord needs it even. Tell them the Lord is in need of them. This is the Lord, the heavenly Lord of all, who has rightful claim to all things for his use. So he's already beginning in the trying to stir in the minds of his disciples the nature of his arrival, the nature of his person. And so he says, if anybody asks you who's in need of him, tell them it's, it's the Lord. And essentially tell them it is the Lord of all who has claim on, on all that he has given, of, given us. And again, though the Lord of all comes riding on the foal of a donkey, he comes on a donkey that in the immediate sense was a borrowed donkey. We, again, we're, we're presented with, with the, those, the amazing humiliation of Christ where He comes as the Lord of all, incarnate God, creator of heaven and earth, and yet He comes and, and there is a need of Him to borrow a donkey, but He borrows it in the name of the Lord of all. And this shows that Christ intended to enter the city as a king. And yet as an unanticipated king. Because what, what we see here is in all the gospel accounts, we find Christ walking. The assumption is that when Christ traveled, he walked. He walked with his disciples. He, he, he traveled by foot. And yet here, in this uh, distinct and intentional change, he tells them, I'm going to ride the rest of the way. I'm going to ride into Jerusalem and I'm going to ride on a specific beast and the beast that he's going to ride on is the foal of a donkey. And how is this foal of a donkey understood or how can we understood it that he's coming in as a king? Uh, we don't want to be anachronistic and said, oh, he's coming on a, on a humble donkey like a peasant or, a, or a, 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 of some sort of um, non-noble means. No, if we were to read our, our scriptures, we are to see that, that the donkey of the Old Testament especially was, was one of nobility. That it was one given to um, uh, those patriarchs of the Old Testament to ride upon. And it was even instructed to uh, the kings of Israel in such a way that they would ride upon donkeys. Because they were not to do what? They were not to trust and horses and chariots. We know the Egyptians had horses and chariots. We know they rode upon them to their great pride and their uh, array of them. 
And yet here uh, we can read in places like Judges chapter 5 and verse 10, the song of Deborah and Barak. And it, and it, says, in, it says in verse 10, tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. The, the previous part of that, it was a, ref, a reference to the nobles of Israel. Tell of these nobles, you who ride on white donkeys and sit on rich carpets. The rich carpets was an understanding that that was probably that was what was draped on the donkey. And you who walk by the way. So the, the foal of a donkey was one of nobility, but the foal part, the donkey was of nobility. The foal part, the colt, the, the unbroken animal, the unridden animal was one of, um, of sacredness, of set apart. We read in uh, other passages where the Ark of the Covenant is taken uh, by the Philistines. And you know it kind of makes its tour through the Philistine cities and every place it goes. Horrible things happen to them as they uh, think that they can um, manhandle uh, this, this, this uh, sacred item of the Old uh, Testament. Where the, the place where the name of the Lord dwells and such that they finally... Uh, call back to Israel and say, come take this thing from us. We don't want it anymore. It's caused us so much trouble. And there was instruction given to them that it, we will show you that this was by the hand of the Lord if you do these things. And one of the things they were to do was to put it on a cart and the cart was to be yoked to two um, unused oxen. These oxen that were set apart uh, for the Lord's purpose. And so it, it reminds us that there's this Connection between the donkey has been written as something to be ridden by nobility, and the fowl, the the foal of a donkey was to be a set apart animal. So we have this noble uh, animal of nobility and this animal that's set apart, and this is the animal that the Lord sends His disciples for. And the other thing that we recognize about the donkey is that it was recognized as by the Israelites as, as a symbol of peace. That, that, that when the king rode in on the donkey, he was, he was coming in peace. And we, we can just make reference uh, by way of rounding it out in the preparation part is that in Genesis 22, we read that Abraham rode a donkey. In Exodus 4, we read how Moses rode a donkey. So it wasn't uncommon for uh, Israelites of noble stature to ride donkeys. And even more so, uh, we see the connection there between the foal of a donkey was, was even more rounding out that what Christ was preparing and to put on display before these Israelites and first and foremost to his disciples was that he was coming as Prince of Peace, as a king rightly entering into his city. And what we are so thankful for when it comes to reading the uh, New Testament is as the New Testament writers wrote, they wrote with an understanding that the Old Testament anticipated these things. That the, the Old Testament it actually wrote about these things in shadow and type. And so uh, the Spirit through the pen of Matthew is kind to us because it provides us an interpretation that we may know what is happening about this mighty act of God. And, and we know that uh, Scripture comes about to us by in, in time and space God acts mightily 
And then he moves his people to record these mighty acts. And then later on, he brings even more to comment and interpret those mighty acts. And what we have here is a little combination of it in the Gospel of Matthew, where we have Matthew recording the mighty acts of God at the arrival of Christ, the incarnate God. And then in, in, in chapter 21, then the Spirit moves to even interpret that. And then later on, we read in the epistles more interpreta- interpretation of the mighty acts of God through the pen of Paul, Peter, and James, and such. And so it says that this was written to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This prophet that is uh, spoken of here is the prophet Zechariah. The prophet Zechariah writes in Zechariah 9.9, and it's recorded there in verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. What we understand that the greater context of the writings of Zechariah is they were, he was writing during the time of Darius, Darius, the Darius of Daniel, the, the return from exiles they send as, as there was a commission to send God's people back into the land to re, with the request to rebuild their temple, to rebuild their city, rebuild their wall. And it was at this time, and so there was a lot of anticipation patient in Zechariah's time that this is it. The Lord is restoring us. The Lord is bringing us back into the Lamb. And so then he moves in Zechariah to write, this isn't it. You, you are, this is, a, um, this is a, uh, a down payment on what will happen in full anti-type and full fulfillment. But this isn't what's happening. Because he's saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, on the foal of the beast of burden. The understanding there was that uh, when I come, I will come in an unexpected, unanticipated, unexpected way. And as I wanted to draw our attention to, because it was important for us to see what, who this daughter of Zion was. And so we read as our Old Testament scripture reading this morning, Isaiah 62, where we see we get to the end of that chapter. It's all about the restoration of Jerusalem, and yet there is an expansion. It's not Jerusalem in the boundaries of that day and age. It's Jerusalem where it will go out to the ends of the earth. And so there's this anticipation of, of a greater Jerusalem, of one that will not be forsaken, of one that will be actually married to the Lord. And so here is Zechariah writes, say to the daughter of Zion. Well, the understanding of daughter of Zion there, especially in Isaiah 62, we we actually get some understanding and we can dive back into um, the early church fathers and the early church writers and we can see this kind of consistent understanding of how these passages were interpreted, how they understood, how the New Testament interpreted the Old Testament. And so uh, uh, one commentator who was writing in the early 9th century, his name was Rabanus Marus, he observes that in history, daughter of Zion is the name given to the city of Jerusalem, which stands on Mount Zion. But mystically, it is the church of the faithful pertaining to Jerusalem, which is above. This daughter of Zion, and as we uh, read in that Hebrews passage, you have not come to Sinai, you have come to Mount Zion. 
And there the writer of the Hebrews is making these connections for us that, that this daughter of Zion is speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem, the one pertaining to the Jerusalem which is above. And so it says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. And we, we're not going to get into it uh, today, but Christ is going to move from his entry into Jerusalem where? To the temple. But what part of the temple? to the court of the Gentiles. And he's going to drive out and cleanse that part of the temple. The part that was to be permitted for the Gentiles' entrance into that area of the temple. And so say to the daughter of Zion, the full encompassing church of Christ, Jew and Gentile, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. But here, to the Jew first, and then the Gentile. And so Matthew uh, uh, makes a reference that, that, that Christ is coming gentle. Zechariah uh, says humbled. The Greek is gentle. The uh, Hebrew is humbled. The meek and lowly Christ. Not on a warring steed, but a ride of a victorious nobility. The ride of, of, of a peaceful noble of a peaceful king, not, not a warring steed, not to drive out their physical enemies, but to come and do battle with that which they truly needed, which was uh, their spiritual enemy. Uh, Charles Spurgeon helps, helped me greatly in preparing for this. He wrote, It represents Zion's king as meek and lowly. Even in the hour of his triumphant entrance to his metropolis, Riding not upon a war horse, but upon a young donkey, whereon no man had sat. He had before said of himself, I am meek and lowly in heart. And now he gives one more proof of the truth of his own words. And at the same time, the fulfillment of prophecy. We, we see the display of our humble Savior here. Not, not on a uh, lowly beast, but on a noble beast but comes on a borrowed beast, comes gentle and humble. William Hendrickson helps us even more. He says, This king is not the fulfillment of men's dreams, but of a specific messianic prophecy. He is both great and humble, exalted and lowly. He is the one in this very act is riding to his death and thus to victory. A victory not only for himself, but also for his true people, those who believe him. He's come in, in his full passive obedience here, where he comes riding upon a donkey to be given over to these authorities, to suffer a cruel and torturous death. And yet in that, we see that obedience that he has to the Father in that covenant of redemption to redeem a people for their own glory. And so he comes lowly and mounted upon a donkey. And what is the response of the people? There's an exclamation. They see him riding in and they're, they're, they're wondering what is going on and they're tearing down palm branches and they're taking off their cloaks and they're putting it on the ground and they're, they're receiving, they're creating this path for him to travel and they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David in verse 9. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
Well, this is a Hebrew expression and it's understood to mean save us. Save us, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us in the highest. And this drives us right back to the beginning of Matthew's gospel where the angel of the Lord comes and declares to Joseph that he should name the child Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now there is um, some confusion there in the crowd. They're, they're, they're crying to the Lord to save them, save us. Save us from our oppressors, our physical oppressors. And I think it's Luke's gospel where he looks upon the crowd and he actually comes in, in a sense, weeping aloud as they cry for him to save them from their physical oppression. And, and he has come to deliver them from their spiritual oppression. And, there, and his arrival is, this, is coming again, riding upon the foal of a donkey into Jerusalem, that it, would, that it, it bore in the minds of these people as they... As they go through their uh, litany of, of songs, the, the, Psalter, the Psalter, what is drawn to their minds is the 118th Psalm. Specifically in verses 25 through 27. It says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Now they didn't finish that section of Psalm 118. But we're able to see that that was what was happening. The sacrifice was coming, mounted upon the colt of a donkey. And they cry out, save us. You see, the Lord was, was moving in these people beyond their human understanding. Now, we may make some assumptions, and it's just speculation that some of those people may have been present in the crowd to uh, condemn Christ and, cr and cry out to crucify Him. And then there would have been some in the crowd that maybe truly believed, that they, they desired uh, deliverance from their spiritual oppression. But it is clear from our passages recorded in Matthew that, that there is something greater at foot here than the deliverance uh, of a physical nature. Because he doesn't go and ride to Herod's palace. He doesn't go and meet, and meet uh, uh, Pontius Pilate man to man in combat. Where does he go? He goes to the temple of the Lord. And he goes proclaiming as he does that. He says, you've made my house into a den of thieves. And, and he says, my house will be a house of prayer. And so I'm so encouraged to uh, be a part and to have the opportunity to preach at other Reformed churches. And much like ours, we spend time in, in intentional prayer. What is our time of gathering if it's not to uh, petition our Lord? Again, I digress. But we have the exclamation of the people to save us. Hosanna to the Son of David. And then this exclamation of the crowd causes certain people to investigate. What is going on here? Who is this person that you have laid down your cloaks, that you have broken down these branches and laid it before him? 
And we can even pause and reflect on that because Christ comes in. There's no cleanup crew that we know of. We don't know what happens after, but you can imagine that there was probably some disappointment in the crowd when he goes to the temple and not to the palace. And they would have returned back to what they were doing that day or to their homes. And maybe they went back to that same area and they would have been able to see for a time these barren trees. And they would have remembered like the, uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? Oh, we thought he was the one, but he was killed and he was crucified. And Christ so lovingly teaches them all that was prophesied about him in the Old Testament, saying, did you not know that that was the purpose of his coming? His first coming was to come and to die and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so there would have been a little bit of that there. They would have seen these barren trees. They would have been cleaning off their dusty cloaks and wondering, did we get it wrong? Did we miss something? Who was that? Who is this, is the investigation? And as I said, it's the glaring question of that time, and it's the perennial question of the age. Who is this person that rode upon this donkey? Well, first we can look at what Christ was displaying about this answer in this account. Again, Spurgeon is such an aid to me. He's so helpful and, and even benedictory. He says, He did not, like Solomon, fetch horses out of Egypt to minister to his pride. But he who was greater than Solomon was content with a colt of a foal of a donkey, and even that humble creature was borrowed, for he had none of his own. The tenderness of Jesus comes out in the fact of his having the donkey brought with her foal that they might not be parted. He was, as a king, all gentleness and mercy. His grandeur involved no pain, even for the meanest living thing. How blessed is it for us to be ruled by such a king. This is our king on display, gentle and merciful, even to the colt of the donkey, as it said, that the donkey and its colt went. The mother was brought with this unbridled and unbroken uh, donkey colt as an act of mercy to the donkey colt. And so we see what a wonderful display of the mercy is of our Savior this morning in the triumphal entry. In this, in this entering into this, to this city, He comes not in the pomp of Egypt, but He comes... In the grandeur, though lowly and veiled in some ways, of the kingdom of God. Because remember, he tells Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, then there'd be no contest. My kingdom is not of this world. And so we see here the greatness that we would be ruled by such a king. And, he, and prior to that, he's, he's teaching his disciples about that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that, that capped uh, a teaching on, on humiliation. Humiliation as one of the uh, defining characteristics of those that are in the kingdom of God. Even so that the Son of Man would come in humiliation to, to not be served, but to serve. 
And as Philippians finished, as Paul writes in Philippians, he says, he comes born as a servant to be obedient and even obedient under the law and to be obedient even unto death and even a cursed death on the cross. What a wonderful Savior we have. The other thing that uh, we may take note of as we ask this question, who is this, is we should ask how this question should affect our worship. Our worship, our church should draw the question, who is this, that draws such enthusiastic praise, that garners such dedication, that's worth your whole day. You may be here this morning as a visitor. You may be here and, and you're not a Christian. You, you're kind of just going, what's going on? What happens at this school? Um, you know, it's, I was invited by a friend or a neighbor. Church, present. Let those people come and experience, have an experience where they're left with. Who, who was that that they were worshiping? Who is worthy of that time? Who is worthy of that intellectual engagement? Who, who is worthy of the voices raised in unison? Who is worthy of the bowing of our heads in prayer? Who is worthy of our whole day? Spurgeon again, my great aid, the church as we generally see it never excites any wonderment among men. They quite understand what it is, a compact of people who have got enough religion to make themselves comfortable and form an association for mutual admiration. But a genuine church is a company formed for the admiration of Christ Jesus. Consider the, the praise of the crowd garnered such attention that people had to ask, who, who is this? Who is this that you laid down your cloak, that you kind of defrocked these trees? Who is it that you would raise your voice in such a way? The other thing we may understand about our worship from this passage is that it should be as simple as this procession, and yet as powerfully dividing as, divided as the crowd. As we proclaim the truth of Christ, we must not be afraid that, that there are those that are in this age perishing and will reject it. As we proclaim justification by faith alone and Christ alone, to God's glory alone, by Scripture alone, there will be some that will say, no, 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 I must do. And if you're going to tell me that there's nothing I can do for my salvation, I'm going to use that back door. We must not be afraid that there will be those that reject the gospel of Christ, but we must take joy in proclaiming it because there are those that are waiting for the bomb of the gospel to alight upon their ears. Wherever the gospel has been preached simply, not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but with the plain words of the common tongue, wherever Christ has been preached affectionately, wherever the whole gospel has been delivered with fervor and with impartiality, 
It has never failed in any place or in any time to draw attention to itself, to excite inquiry and to compel men to take sides about it one way or the other. You see, when Christ enters into this city arrayed in, as, as the God of the universe, arrayed and clothed in humanity, and even further, we see him riding upon the noble foal of a donkey, yet humble and gentle, as the king of peace, coming in full direction to his demise, to his giving of his life. The prayer is that the Spirit of God would work in us and be in this place as we worship Him, that we are worshiping our Lord who came in such a way and saved us so completely that we may proclaim the gospel, the scandalous gospel that those that call upon His name may be saved. Not of their own works, but of the completed work of Christ. And we anticipate the day when He will... He will not ride upon a donkey, but ride upon the clouds and return in splendor and glory and when our faith shall be sight. If you'll permit me, let me close my time in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you that you've given us such a wonderful word in the Gospel of Matthew. We thank you that you've given us your word in the Old Testament in such great consistency and continuity that we're able to see the holy anticipation of Christ's arrival that we are able to read with great intrigue the prophets and see with great joy the arrival of our Savior and we thank you Lord that we worship not just the man of Galilee. We worship the exalted Savior, lifted high and above us, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us even now, and making ready for us a heavenly Jerusalem. O Lord, may it incite in us the greater love and gratitude of obedience and the greater desire to see those that do not know our Savior to come to a saving knowledge of Him. We thank you for this time. We ask your hand a blessing as we continue to worship you this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.